Hey everybody, this is Rita Springer, and once again, welcome to the Rita Springer Podcast. I am so excited about this subject we're going to talk about here in this new little series. It's actually my favorite subject, creative expression. Uh, I have had a revolution in my life with it. It's been massive revelation to my calling, uh, to my gifting, and really to to narrow it down to like a like an epicenter for me. It changed how I related uh, to to the Lord. It changed how I talked to Him. It changed how I um, thought about Him. And so I think it's just become um, a subject that I love to encourage people in and cause people to think a little bit more about, you know, this, the, not just this, this relationship with the deity or this relationship with just this ominous alpha and omega, he sits up on a throne in heaven type of relationship, but actually to embody like the entire being of God and all of the facets of who he is and realize that when you're relating with the Lord in any given sense of the word, whether it's, you know, just um, by faith, talking to the Lord every day, growing in a relationship with the Lord every day, praying, intercession, um, when I'm writing, when I'm doing anything that has to do with um, what I'm called to do, what I feel led to do, um, my relationship with the Lord is kind of tucked in that. I, I remember years ago, years and years ago, when I was a younger, up-and-coming, no-name, uh, worship leader, songwriter, there was a um, worship leader in the Vineyard Church that I was going to at the time, and and he made this statement that when he got saved or when he um, started salvationing, I always like to say that because that's the real Greek terminology for sozo, which is salvation. But I think I talked about this before. It's a constant, ever-present tense. So I think when we say, hey, you know, I was saved when I was, it's not a past tense thing. It's a constant, ever-present tense. So he, he made the statement that when he, you know, invited the Lord into his heart, his guitar, um, you know, got saved right along with him. And I actually loved the imagery of that. I love the fact that that he had invited, you know, Jesus into his heart. And because Jesus had renewed his life, everything he did on the outside then was because of the internal change. And I love that idea of, of this internal thing happening and then it becomes this outward thing. You know, when we, we really delve and read scripture and we, we go into that New Testament quality of, of the gospels and, and Jesus really talking to the disciples and teaching the disciples and mentoring them in who he was and what he came to do, you see a, a completely different part of, of the Father God. You see this son who becomes this painting, like this absolutely stunning painting with, with imagery and with um, poetry and colors that you didn't necessarily see in the, in the Old Testament you know, of, of God um, not incarnate yet, um, God prophesying the sun coming, but having to deal with people and their sacrifices as they would bring um, their sacrifices to the altars. And then when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he kind of changes the game. And so I love the subject of creative expression because when I started, you know, just really walking with the Lord, I'd say about 16, 17 years old, really kind of understanding that I'd given my life over to the Lord. 
at that young age, but really walking in relationship with the Lord, which means we were conversing. I was learning to hear. I was learning how to risk um, talking to the Lord. Um, I still kind of felt like it was knock, knock, knock. Hi, it's me. Can I come in? Um, am I allowed in your living room? Am I allowed to sit on your furniture? I think a lot of us have that relationship with the Lord where we see it as this kind of stoic, uh, you know, some religions, you know, detail it like that. And I didn't grow up in a religion that did. Um, I had a very passionate father, obviously. But still, the translation of religion and relationship has always kind of had this stuck value in my own journey. So I've had to actually get out of the religious side of it and into this relational side of it. Because when you're in a relational side um, with the Lord, you you learn those different attributes. You you have to actually really learn, okay, today I... I'm not really in need of a father today. I'm in need of, you know, a friend or today I'm in need of actually a savior to save me from this predicament or a, a leader to, to lead me out of this, like a shepherd to lead me out of this, this path. And so finding these facets of, of the Lord without feeling like it's a knock, knock, knock. Hi, it's me again. I want to come down. Can I, can I just sit here and complain to you for a few minutes and see maybe hopefully if I cross my fingers, you'll answer these cries that I have, I think we have sometimes this viewpoint. We put God on this shelf of, of where we pass by and, you know, we throw the water on our, ourselves or, or we acknowledge that he's there, but we don't really have this kind of take in the whole identity of who he is. And so for me, it was kind of like this journey. And I felt like it was this invitation from the Lord to go on this, this path and find out exactly who he was. I kind of did that years ago when I started writing this book. Um, the Lord was was really challenging me on how I was kind of down on my own gender. Like I, I'd, I'd even given Eve a bad rap. And of course, I'd been sitting in, you know, sermons that talked about Eve for years. And most of those sermons that I was in were preached by men. And Men would talk about Eve um, a lot of the times in in kind of a negative format, like, well, you know, she's this weaker vessel. And and so when I kind of was down on women and the Lord started to tell me that, you know, I needed to actually change that mentality because in my life, whatever I was going to do, he said, I was going to have an avenue to encourage and mentor and throw life on women. And I just, I remember back then thinking, that's never going to happen. Like, I'm not going to do that. I have no passion for that. Like, let somebody who wants to be a woman's pastor or a woman's speaker do that. I I was very actually petrified of women um, in leadership because I had never really seen a great one. And I just felt so inferior in my own gender that to give that gender of mine, almost like a platform. I was like, well, I wouldn't give myself a platform. Why would I, you know, want to ever exonerate or lift up somebody else like that? And I just had, had known more backbiting, slanderous women, I think, in my life and had never really found a full mentor. Not an amazing mother, obviously, but I didn't have any mentors in the church that were women that took me aside and said, 
you know, hey, there's something in you. I wished, I longed for that, actually. I longed even in, when I was in the Vineyard Church as a teen, I was like, man, it would be great if there were, there were women that would come up alongside, even as, as the musician in me started to bud and say, hey, oh my gosh, you're amazing. There's something on you, go for this. I never found that in women. I, I found jealousy. I found, you know, a lot of backbiting, a lot of um, talking behind my back type of a thing. And so... I had no understanding of that. And, and I say that because when God took me down this road to say, hey, look, go back to scripture and I want you to go back and I want you to start unraveling the story of Eve. And, and it's not a hard story to unravel. Like I think she's in there four times. But I started to actually sit down inside the scripture and have these conversations with the Lord and do these researches and just started thinking from the perspective of a woman. And my mind started to just be blown at just sitting down and gleaning truth for the sake of truth and how, you know, you can take this small morsel of something that's true and all of a sudden when you're staring at it, it's not just a small part of the room that you're in. It becomes, it illuminates the whole room. And so for me, that's how this creative thing kind of started. I, I would never have said, in fact, um, many of you will understand um, when I say this kind of, um, you know, motto that, that some of us have, you know, we can, we can watch the HDTVs on television and we gravitate toward that stuff because it's transformation. So our humanity is actually geared to lean toward transformation of any kind. And so a good story that has a happy ending, I'm like, we're geared in our humanity to hear the testimonial of the way out. It's the way that we're wired. It's, I think it's a spiritual wiring that's in everybody to see, you know, there, there's a way in, there's a way through, and then there's a way out. And so we gravitate toward all these kind of these shows with all of these transformations that are attached to them, whether they're, you know, plastic surgery shows or, or whether they're, you know, home improvement shows or whatever, they're, they're out there dime a dozen now. And, and we gravitate toward them because we love to see the before and after. We love to see what didn't look great and then what, what ended up looking amazing. And then what do we feel afterward? We feel incredibly inspired by it. And there's something in us. It's like we've never drywalled before in our lives. But all of a sudden, after watching that show, like how hard could it be to drywall? I mean, I, I just remember thinking some of those things like how hard, how hard, really, how hard would it be to retile the whole house? You know, when you look at these shows and you think you see the transformation. And so understand that our humanity is wired for that kind of transformation, which means that if we're wired for the transformation, we're also wired to believe that we can do something that we've never done before. And I think that is so key to how we proceed, no matter where you are at, how long you've been there in, in your faith, that can God become and look like he has more than just a profile viewpoint in your life. What if he turned, you know, a few more degrees and you saw, oh my gosh, I thought perhaps he might look like this. And actually he looks like this. And I'm not talking about God changing the way he is outside of our theology. Like the Bible is the inherent word of God. It is what I believe 
um, is truthful from the beginning to the end. So you can't like grab things out of here and twist them to your own to the, your own understanding or rewrite them in a way that actually says something that it doesn't say. One of the exercises in, I call them activations in this creative arts school that I um, began called DIVE, which is an acronym for Deep Innovative Vertical Expression, where I would take these kind of artist creative types and I would just bring them in for seven days. And in seven days, we would just we would do these activations to try to get the brain working outside of its stuck capacity sometimes in our roles of leadership or in church leadership and you know in our songwriting skills our dance skills our our you know a script writing skills whatever it is, any form of creative expression these students came and we do these activations and one of the activations that I would do with them is that I would take a portion of scripture and I would read that portion of scripture. I would write that portion of scripture on the blackboard. And then their assignment was in the next 15 minutes to rewrite every word of that scripture without ever losing the content or the theology behind what scripture was saying that it said. And I always grabbed a couple few verses out of Lamentations. And the reason I did that is because Lamentations is already a very, very poetic book in the Bible. And it's a very lamenting, obviously, book in the Bible. And so there's a lot of grieving process and a lot of big words and and heartfelt, you know, expressions. And so I I wanted them to um, to take something that already had a feeling on it and rewrite it to their language, to their the way that they would talk. And so I would give them some examples. Sometimes we'd have some students that didn't understand what the instructions were, but it was a beautiful way to um, to articulate how you heard scripture, how you would say things to the Lord without ever losing the theology behind it. I think one of the greatest dangers that we have in a generation today is that the church and a lot of people in the church have watered down the scripture and the depth of the scripture and the truth of the scripture. And I'm just a very firm believer that you can't take something out of context to fit what you want it to say when you're burning the theology alive in it as you're trying to translate it. And so to just really be clear on what scripture says, because as, as we go through some of these things, I'm going to talk about some weird stuff that you might have to actually be like, oof, I, I need to like step outside of the way I've always thought because I had to do this, but none of the theology in scripture is actually being tainted. It's that place where, um, you know, when, when these writers of the scripture, um, were writing this stuff down, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down the happenings of the day and the things that were going on. And thank God that people were transcribing these things. Thank God for, for scrolls and scribes that, and poets that were, um, following and writing things down. I think we, we need to do that a lot more in our daily lives. That's why I think everybody should journal because the power of the testimony of, you know, what happened and what is happening is, is just, it's life altering. It's life changing. Um, having conversations with God and, and being willing to sit down and talk to the Lord. And so I didn't have all of this stuff going on in me 
until later on where the Lord had to be like, Hey, I want you to do this. And I want you to think about this differently. And I want you to think about this differently because, you know, we, we flip on those TV shows, like I was saying, and, and we want the transformation, but then we will kind of curse ourselves or make vows by saying, Oh, I could never do that. Like I don't have a creative bone in my body. I've heard that so many times. I don't have a creative bone in my body. And it's like, I want us to stop that language because what we're actually saying is, you know, I don't have a desire to sit down and play the piano, or I don't think I, I have the patience right now to learn how to build a house. Um, I don't think I have the patience right now to take an art class and learn how to, to, to paint a masterpiece. Some of us aren't geared to do those things. We have no desire to walk into those things and accomplish those things to the best of our ability because we don't have the time. It's just not an interest, whatever. But I think we should cut out the saying, oh my gosh, I don't have a creative bone in my body. There's no way I could ever do that. Because then we limit ourselves to, to the these places where God shows up and says, hey, I want you to pick up that stick now. And I want you to walk with that stick now. Or I want you to pick up that brush and I want you to walk with that brush. Or I want you to pick up you know, this over here and I want you to, like to actually put some time and energy into that. Because you never know from what age you start to what age God is ever going to be finished with you. And this has been a big subject for me to really encourage those even in my age bracket and beyond. Now, I, I'm just going to be really honest. I probably relate more with a younger crowd. And that's not because I try to relate with the younger crowd. I think because I've kept my mind in this place and I've kept my fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the now. And many people in my age bracket, you know, they, they get the memo throughout their life that, you know, the expiration date's approaching, um, and this is where your life is over. And this is where, you know, your, your meaning is kind of like, um, starts to lose its, um, its phenomenon and you're just going to like fade into the distance. I, I don't see any of that language in scripture. Like there's none of that language in scripture. It actually talks about, you know, that the, the younger generation and the older generation, if they got together and they began to move together and breathe together and dream together, that um, so much would get accomplished. And so when we diss a generation, um, I think it's a disservice to a generation, whether you're young and you're dissing the, the old or you're old dissing the young. And I think it's very, very important to remember that as you process God as creator and as the greatest artist there ever was. Um, and there's no one like him. And, and so, um, this is just the premise that I want to paint before this, because I think we, we tend to build uh, barricades in our lives for things. You know, if you went to college, um, I think I talked about this in, in the, um, everybody has a story series, but you know, I, I talked about the decades that I believe God really does great things with us in decades. And so I don't really talk about the teenage years. I talk about, you know, from 20 to 30, 20 to 30, you are this young individual trying to figure life out, trying to figure out, you know, how it all works. What, what are you going to do with your life? And you make a million mistakes and you make a million different decisions. You start out thinking you're going to be one thing and you end up 
being something completely different. I mean, I remember my niece lived with me in her um, early college years, and you know, she she's such a um, an adventurist, but she would literally come downstairs and she would say things to me like, "I I've had an epiphany today. I'm I'm gonna." I feel like I'm supposed to train mammals for a living. And she was just certain for a week that she was going to go off to mammal training school, wherever that is, and train whales um, for a living. And then it would be like, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bike the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to spend six months doing it. It's going to be the greatest adventure of my life. She had this incredibly beautiful mind. And what I loved about it even then was that she wasn't afraid to think that she could be something different on Thursday than she did on Wednesday. You know, she, she just, she just blew with the wind. And I think our 20s are supposed to be like that. And there's so much that shifts and happens by the time that we're 30. And and my encouragement is, is that 20 to 30, it's okay to make those mistakes and try to figure out who you are, but don't get to 30 without figuring out who you are. Like have a solid idea and a solid foundation of who you are. And then Keep yourself in a position and a posture of being open and willing to receive whatever God has for you. Because I think sometimes our college educations or, you know, whatever we did in our 20s, it solidifies something in in us that says, well, you have to figure it out by then. And if you don't figure it out by then and just stay in the same job, doing the same thing all the time, for some of us that works, but for a lot of other people, it doesn't, that doesn't work. But if we're, if our mentality and our brain says, oh, you can't go back and decide something different. Oh, you can't do that. You were never trained for that. Oh, you can't. Honestly, life is about, you know, grabbing hold of the seasons as they come and listening to what the Lord is saying. Now, my heart is that whatever vocation you choose, that you would would learn to grow in that vocation, learn to grow in that career, learn to grow to where you're not um, uh, you know, like, um, putting yourself in a corner and, and keeping yourself in the same position that you've always been in, in the same thought process that you've always been in for some people that's super safe. But when you're attaching yourself to creative expression and to the idea that God is broader and as the artist, the way that he thinks is in color, not in black and white. And the scripture kind of reveals this to us that God is not a black and white thinker as, as it, in terms of color, he doesn't just choose one thing or the other. He's a multifaceted God, multidimensional God. And, um, he is wildly artistic and what he does. And so again, that's where I kind of came into this context of, oh, so the knock, 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 hey, it's me again. Can I come into your living room and sit down? I mean, I hope it's okay to sit on your furniture. Kind of asking God's permission to come in like I have to really make sure to wipe my feet on the mat before I come. When God's personality is, the door is unlocked. Like, come into the house. The house is big enough for everybody. Come into the house and understand that I'm going to meet you where you're at. There was this little book. I don't know who it's by. I don't know who wrote it, but it had such an impact on me as a child. Um, it was somewhere on the foyer of, again, our Baptist church. Maybe it sat right there next to that, our daily breads, you know, a uh, little 30 day, um, devotional, but it, it, it was just this little book 
I mean, it may have been one of those little track books. I'm not sure, but it was called um, My Heart Christ Home. And I just remember this story. I can't like, I can't remember everything in detail, but basically this little book was this story of how my heart was actually a house and every room had a room. And it was like wherever you met God in one of those rooms depicted something about your life. So it was really this beautiful creative expression or this creative illustration of my heart actually being a house that God got to live in because I invited him to come and live in there. And so there were sometimes rooms in there where the doors were locked. And I think there was, you know, um, rooms that were rooms that God couldn't go into that he wanted to go into. And just, it was just this great illustration of our hearts as actually a house for the Lord. Now that in itself is somebody's, you know, creative combustion on this thing that we have in relationship with God. And they built this story out of it that, that when we read it, we're like, yeah, oh my gosh, that's relatable. Now I understand it. And so that's the beauty of, of this creative look at things is, isn't it better to actually hear a story told? Jesus told stories all the time. He told parables in scripture all the time. And it's kind of like an aha moment for some of us. Some of us don't pull in information the way others do. Some of us are very, very, they are black and white. They see things very black and white and they need, you know, a, almost a technical kind of instruction for things, the way their brain is wired, which that's creative. And then there are others that, you know, and I'm in this category where you tell me a story about it, even in school and learning, if you build a story around it, I would love it. I remember when Justice was in Bible class in grade school at this Christian school he attended in Dallas, the Bible teacher just wasn't his favorite. And, um, you know, he was just very bored with Bible class. And he would come home and it was so hard for him to retain some of this biblical information that they were telling him, you know, at the fifth and sixth grade. And I realized no one's telling me stories. The teacher isn't telling me stories. She's telling it from a technical standpoint. My kid is a creative thinker. And so when I told the story at night about, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, it was this big, you know, um, Pixar um, presentation to justice where I put imagination in him to build these characters. And these characters had faces and names and voices and and they had scenarios and they were having to combat things. And so the retention of the story settled better in that form of brain because of the way our brains are wired. And so for us to think that God is this stoic kind of guy that sits on a throne and, and illuminates himself on a throne. Yes, there's a throne. Yes, he sits upon it according to scripture, but he's also this creative being that wants us to actually come into an identity of what it is we carry within our own molecule and how um, we function uh, and, and why we think the way that we think when we think it and what we gear and lean more toward. And when we realize, oh, I'm so much better at the storytelling than I am at this, then you lean in that direction and you start actually acquiring information based on how you learn. And then you grow because you're getting information based on how it's pulled in clearly to you. And I don't know, there's just been so much limitations that I have felt 
growing up that I didn't feel like I had license for that in the church, especially with regard to using the term creative or artist or artistic. There's something, I'm not sure who wrote the memo on it and I'm not sure who, you know, who, um, I don't, I don't even know if it's, it's part of a religious wall, you know, that's tacked onto some religious wall, but the word artist just like the word musician, um, but artistry scares the church dynamics. Like artists are the most misunderstood people that I have found in the body of the church when we should actually become the most celebrated because our artistry is really the biggest DNA that we have that says, oh my gosh, we came from him. We came from him. When you, when you start to look at, I hope you guys are tracking me with these, with this, but when you start to look at the differences between heaven and hell or the differences between, um, Jesus and the devil, um, we don't know much, you know, we, we find out in, in the old Testament, these little things that we've all of a sudden become our theology about what Lucifer was, what his role was in heaven, um, you know, how he was cast down, 30 angels fell with him and all these things. And so there's this picture painted that he was the, the angel of the arts, right? Like he, you know, I've heard it said he was like the worshiping angel, like the, the angel that, that was the creative angel. I don't know. Um, I don't know that there's massive commentary detail to all of that. I've read some of the stuff out there, but what we do know from what we have gleaned in scripture is that, he held a position and that position had influence, great influence attached to it. And so I've always been like, well, it kind of makes sense because the one language that is versatile in every country, every nation that we all speak fluently is artistry. We all go to the movies in every nation, every country. Everybody likes a great concert. Everybody is drawn to the arts. They're drawn to art museums. They're drawn to anything that has to do with artistic and creative expression. And it is our global universal language. I don't go to buy a ticket to a theater to watch a Marvel film and sit in the theater with a bunch of faith believing Christians. I'm in there with the world. And the, the one common, you know, um, similarity between us is that we are drawn to art. We're drawn to these things. Why are we drawn to these things? Why in all of our cultures are we fascinated by the art of food and we're fascinated by the art of color and we're fascinated by all of these beautifully artistic things. We will go on vacations to see landscapes that just make us gasp because there's something about our beings that are drawn to art and drawn to the need for the oxygen of art. So, you know, asking, I just started asking myself the question, and maybe this is just a common thread with people, but in the conversations that I have, people rarely think about this kind of stuff. And the church is still very leery of artistry. We don't know what to do with these artists. I'm trying to paint this picture of how in-depth this is. This isn't just about, you know, um, 
God being the artist. It's about God being the artist first, but then creating all of these things. And then the last thing he creates is the form of man. And in that form, he puts his image in it. And so within the image of man is the reverberation of artistry and thought process and creativity. And we have in the church done an incredible injustice at pushing this creative expression off to the side because we're so afraid of the power of it. Now, let me kind of bring this into part of this theory that I have, you know, with, with Lucifer or, you know, Satan or the devil or whatever you want to call him being thrown out of heaven. And one of the greatest things that we have, like I said, this global language of artistry that all of us really love, all of us buy the tickets, all of us go out and do it. All of us want to be in the arenas. All of us want to go to the dances. All of us want, you know, we're, we're, we're primed for this. Like we're made for this. Our humanity's made for this kind of stuff. And so because it's who we are, it's in our DNA. Um, but then you've got this theory that, you know, Lucifer or this angel, this dark angel that fell, that creates this hellish kind of existence that we have in our faith. You see all of this tainting of the arts. And you, you, you have to understand, you can't look at the power of a, a painting and a power of, of color on canvas or the power of a musical intonation that can strike a memory in somebody and have them write back 10 years to the very same thing that happened to the very memory. I mean, music is one of the most powerful, overwhelming things for the brain. And, and art is used in and out of therapy constantly because of its power and how it works in the brain. And so you have to start putting two and two together thinking, oh, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of this stuff makes sense when you gather it together in this beautiful centerpiece of, oh my, oh my gosh, this is all part of God. Like this is all a part of God. And what has the enemy done to compromise the power of the artistry of God? Because the enemy goes overboard to steal our sound, overboard to steal our art, overboard to steal and compromise our music. But he can't author and say he's the author of any of it. He can't say he's the author of the understanding or the creative um, genius of music. He cannot get credit for um, how people begin to draw things or paint. There's nothing he can take credit for in the arts. He wasn't there when God, in all of his mastership plan, was doing all of these beautiful things in those first five days before he gets to day six. The enemy wasn't, um, I'm, maybe he was watching what was happening, but he wasn't in that plan of, of partnership. He had no partnership in creative expression. All that he does is infects himself within the human that carries the art, and then he can compromise the art. And when he compromises the art, he actually can grab a hold of the soul. 
because I believe that the art in us is actually, a, it's, a, it's a conduit to our soul. Um, I am, was always drawn to music. I was always drawn to acting. I was always drawn to illustration. I was always drawn to those things. It is the clearest form that God has ever spoken to me. It was my pipeline to the Lord. And so when my attack comes, my attack comes from hell to actually begin to wither and wilt and cause me to think ill about what I have to offer in my art, what I have to do in my art. It almost to the point where, you know, in my younger years, it was like, just kind of screw the the Christian industry. They don't understand you. They blacklist you because they don't understand prophetic worship. They, they haven't understood what you bring to the table in worship because worship really wasn't on the table at that point in my journey. And it was like, just screw the church and go off and the, the world has no problem with the way that your texture of your voice is. The secular division has no problem with that. And I could have easily done that and probably would have been incredibly well-received in the world. But I don't know if I would have kept my soul if I would have done it. Because there was something and a road that I was on that God used the sound and the art and the color and the vibrance and the frequencies of it to actually knit me together with him so deeply that it changed my world. And so reading scripture became uh, just this art form. It was like, I mean, yes, you always get upon some scriptures that you're like, huh? Like what? What are they doing? Huh? What? I don't understand this. But I started reading it as a, from a perspective of the story God was telling about himself, because we all tell a bunch of stories, but this is the story that gets us um, his manuscript that causes us to understand, oh, this is how he works. Oh, this is how he loves. Oh, this is where his grace is. And then when you start asking conversations about it, I call it the motherboard. Like this thing in us, like, you know, like a computer, our laptops have these motherboards on them or these boards where everything is, it's all down to these little wires and these little components. And but those things connected together actually makes the whole thing light up. And there are moments in our life where we touch what we were always supposed to touch and we read what we were always supposed to read in a way we need to read it and we feel like we're lighting up. And I think it's because God's been trying to tell us our story. And when we come into context where we're reading from the same page that he's reading from our lives, all in unison, all of a sudden there's a, there's a board that, that lights up. I say this to, to moms, you know, I've, I've met so many young girls that are like, I don't think I'll ever become a mom. I don't really want kids. I don't think I could ever do that. I just have no patience with it. And I'm, I'm think, yeah, in our youth, sometimes we think that because we don't carry what we need to carry. And that part of us hasn't been lit up yet. But the moment a baby's placed in your arm or the, or the moment you're told you're pregnant or the stick says you're pregnant, there is something that is triggered in just about every woman. And those that don't have it, those that don't feel that usually have piles and piles of stuff, um, whether it's mental stuff that they're working through or or trauma that they're working through that actually is is depleting that part of them. But I think women were born to have a motherboard that lights up when the part of what she's been called to do, part of what she's been given 
an authority to do in carrying a child. The man hasn't been given that authority by God. The woman has been given the parts, the ability to procreate and to bring life into the world. And so there is a drive in her and a, and a, and a switch that when that flips up, all of a sudden you, you come against her and that baby and you'll see hell in her eyes. Like you'll see fire in her eyes if you ever try to, to come against her and her child. And so that is a, an internal thing that God has placed in us because he gave us the necessary parts to actually acquire that and then become what we need to be for that. And part of our confusion has been when we try to rewrite the story that God's already told and make this artistic thing that God put into place. It's almost like God painted this picture and the picture is what it is. Like if you were ever to walk into the museum that the Mona Lisa, I don't know if it's the Louvre or, or wherever the, the Mona Lisa is hanging. And if you were ever to try to approach that picture and do anything or add anything to that picture, you would be arrested, put in jail and have to serve time because that picture is a one of a kind picture and it is hailed as one of the greatest masterpieces of all time and changing it um is never an option changing it is never going to happen like if somebody came in and tried to wreck that masterpiece it would never be the same and it would never be what it once was and there's this thing we have to kind of back into and come back into alignment with in the role and the power of artistry is that when God tells a story, he's telling a story because it's his story to tell. And then when he makes a human and creates a human, he has a story that scripture says he's already spoken over us. And it's our journey to walk out that story and have our boards light up in the seasons they're supposed to light up in consecutively in unison with when and where he's trying to get us to go because there's connections that we make. There's, there's so much to this. I hope you guys are grabbing a little bit about the depth of this because it is so kind of crazy, but but, you know, in this episode, I'm going to kind of go from, from the scripture's perspective of this. So you can just kind of see what it is I'm talking about with how um, scripture relates to God as the artist. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, we're going to see this beautiful schedule of events that, um, that God is doing. And, you know, if, if, you've, if you've heard about it, read about it, if you're as old as I am and you had a felt storyboard in Sunday school about it over and over and over, you, you probably understand scripture via how it's been told to you as opposed to how you read it. But when you start reading, you know, one, two, three, four, five. So the first five days, I always talk about the first five days. The first five days, uh, scripture doesn't start off with, in the beginning, you know, God created man and, um, God's whole idea was that he was going to have to send a Messiah to save this man. It doesn't start off saying that. It starts off the story from the perspective of where God is, what he's thinking about, what he has to set in place that actually remains the same. And the only thing that he does differently that doesn't remain the same is day six. 
So day one, two, three, four, five, God creates all of these things, sets it in place so that it cannot be maneuvered and it cannot change. But day six, he gives free will to. But free will lives under the canopy of what cannot change, what will always remain um, the way that it is structured, which I think you have to understand God better when you see, oh, God sets boundary lines in place, according to scripture, pleasant places, he calls them. And so in Genesis chapter one, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless, it says, and empty darkness was all over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So it, it talks about God, um, the spirit of God hovering over a formless mass. And all of a sudden God is going to do something, um, artistic, He's going to do something creative. Why? Because he's putting shape to it. He's giving color and dimension to it. He's giving sound and frequencies to it. Therefore, he is the great artist. And so um, I'm fascinated in scripture that the first thing he does, it, it says it is he creates light and he creates darkness. So he separates light from basically from darkness but he doesn't really call it, you know, the, the day and the night, or it, he doesn't give it its dimensions until day four when he hangs the sun and he hangs the moon. So I pull that into an understanding here. He's creating this stuff out of formless, and he says, let there be light in the beginning. You know, verse three, he's like, let there be light. But the light that we know is light is the sunrise and the light that we know is night is the moon. And he hasn't even hung that stuff yet. And so he's speaking into existence something that he doesn't even really articulate and then add, do an add. It's like an add on, you know, it's like a Minecraft add on later. Um, until day four, which I just find fascinating. I mean, my, my brain spins at how he does all this. You know, he, he says, let there be light. And he sees that the light is good. Whatever that light is at the time, he sees that that light is good. And then he uses that to separate it from the darkness that he started with. And then he, he, he calls it day. He calls it night. And then he says, the, the Bible talks about evening and the, and the morning. And then he does this thing where he calls the sky like this vault, like the NIV talks about the vault. Like he, he separates the vault between the waters. So he, he basically pushes the sky to the sky. He, he pushes the water to the water. And then he gathers the water in one place. So he's, he's gathering, you know, these bodies of water, like the great vast oceans, and he's creating the land around it. I mean, he's just, he's fascinating and how he's doing this, but there's a rhyme and a reason for everything that he's doing. Like every, every bit of, you know, conscious um, detail that he's putting to what he's doing, it, it's there for a reason. And understand that everything that he does, scientists and 
people that study the skies and study the stars and study the planets, they can't really figure out all this stuff yet. We are still, according to the oceanographers and, and the, 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 those that travel to the depths of the ocean, we're, they're still finding stuff in the bottom of the ocean that they've never named before because only really God knows what it is he set up there. But according to scripture, which is our given theology of how it works and as a fear in God believer of what this is saying, I believe this is how it all happened. And so if, if the problem for you is that I don't believe that, you know, that God was the one that created the universe, I think it was just this big explosion. And I mean, that's fine. Like, I get that people have to have like a, in parentheses to their own fear of what this could actually pertain. But for those of us that are faith believers, understand that, that this makes sense and it makes perfect sense the way that God is setting it up. But none of this stuff, you know, none of the waters or the sea creatures or the land creatures or, um, you know, it's it's interesting that when he does all these things, you know, he gathers the waters in one place and he he puts dry ground and, and land around the sea and and then he he calls the land to production like he he calls the land to production and and then he gives the, these these stars in the sky, which I just I, I, I find that fascinating. Um, in uh, Genesis chapter one, in, in the 14th verse, you know, he says, let there be lights in that vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. I don't know why that just chokes me up. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights. And then he talks about the, the governing lights of the moon and the sun. But I, I, I find it just, I, I reverent um, in scripture that when we talk about the artistry of the stars and how, how actually the stars, when you go into like how stars are formed, how they're made, how many years it takes to actually get a star to, to, to become a shining star, you know, according to scripture, he put them there to serve as a mark of sacred times of days and years. So I want to throw into this understanding as well that our God is a God of season. God is an artistry God of season. So as we talk about this whole creative exploring that we're doing, right, I'm going to put in these facets of things that just mesmerize me about, about God. God is the artist and author of seasons. Everything has a season to God. He created that in, in the first place. Within the environment that he creates, you know, man's on the sixth day. Remember, man's off to the side. Um, but in those first five days, everything is given its post, its place. We do not have cows on land, you know, um, slumping down to the grass and saying, why wasn't I made a pig? How come I can't be a pig? I just want to be a pig. We don't have sharks in the ocean swimming around being like, why wasn't I made a cow? Like, how come I'm not a cow? Like, God didn't give those first five days, the option of being anything else than what they were supposed to be. They were not given the choice the way man was given the choice. Uh, I used to um, joke around with Justice all the time when he was little because we'd go to the beach. It was our favorite place to be. 
And I was always petrified of him, you know, getting caught in a dune with a sand shark or whatever. I just, you know, I'd seen Jaws one too many times as a kid. And he asked me one day as like a three or four year old, why do sharks eat people? And I said, hey, look, buddy, if a shark busted through the door of our house and came in our house and tried to attack us or destroy our house, I, the first thing that I would do is try to kill the shark. So he, I said, you have to understand when you walk into their house, they weren't given any other instruction than you looked like a sea turtle. And they were given uh, an authorization from God, their creator, that they could devour sea turtles. And so we have to almost look at it like that. Those first five days, we're not given the instruction to be anything else. A tree doesn't want to be a bush. A bush doesn't want to be a flower. But it should actually give us a strong understanding of when God makes female and he makes male, he's, not, he, he's giving them choice but he's not giving them the deity among them to say, oh yeah, you can change what you want to change. He's saying, you could choose what you want to choose, but whatever you choose is going to keep you in alignment with either good or it's going to keep you in alignment with evil. And that's part of the artistry of the way God creates. So understand, we are first the artistry of God. We're the author of the Lord. God has authored us in our detail according to scripture and according to biblical truth. He has authored us. He has created us as an image to who he is, but he's given us the body and the makeup of genius. I mean, it's just genius. I mean, I say to women all the time, I'm like, so you just find it like incredibly fascinating that your human body can house another human, grow it, mature it and then outside the body you can keep it alive for a year with what comes from your body i mean it's just it's it's insanity when you think about the brilliance and the artistry of god and so i want to put that form out there before we actually talk about like you know music and frequencies and even the law of physics because the law of physics kind of goes into all this stuff the law of frequencies goes into all of this stuff which we'll talk about later but I just want to just hone into this this beautiful point in Scripture that God is setting in place seasons. He's setting in place seasons. Ecclesiastes talks about that there's a time for everything under heaven. You have a, a time for joy. You have a time to mourn. He has set into place along with the creation that he's done that there is a time and a season for everything. Our areas where we live, we all go through different seasons. Yes, um, we all have winter. We all have spring. If you're in the South, uh, if you're specifically in Texas, you probably never really get a winter. Um, but we still call it winter because that's what our seasons have dictated for us that have been there throughout the course of time. And it doesn't change. Those things aren't changing. The only thing that wants to change things is man. But there are stuff already set in place that it's actually a sign to us of the deity, the holiness, the artistry, the imagination, and the credibility of the Lord. And that is not lost on me. Like that is something I think about so much. And it actually made him so much more real because I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I have looked at seasons and felt almost like in this combustion of seasons, right? Where we spiritually, because, you know, the Psalms will talk about it. 
Um, and and you, you see it in the Old Testament as well when, when they talk about spring and seasons and winters. Um, it relates our heartache to these things. And so we can, I've said so many times in my past, and I've just been in the longest winter of my life. Like, and I'm saying spiritually, it feels like I'm in a winter that there is no life. There's nothing there. It feels like the same old, same old, and I can't break into spring. So we will actually use season terminology to dictate our spiritual encounters. And there's a reason why we do that. But here's the, the revelation of it that I, I came into terms with. I'm locking myself into a winter season when that is not at all how God designed it. God did not design me to have winter for five years or longer than 12 months. I mean, it's like there's, there's areas that we live in, in geographical areas that winter lasts longer in one area than it will another, but it will eventually be over because that is the way the structure and the canopy of seasons have gone from the beginning of time. We cannot change that. What does that say? That gives us uh, an articulation from heaven that God has put into place this thing that's over us all the time saying, stop binding yourself to a season when I've never created seasons to last longer than they're ever supposed to last. Why are you binding yourself to a season? Even in Hebrew um, law, like there was a season for grieving. If you lost somebody, you know, the, the, the wearing of black lasted, you know, um, even in our, our nation here, it's like in the olden days, if you lost somebody, you would, you would wear black and you would wear it for a certain amount of time because it was the grieving season. When the grieving season was over, you took off the garments of mourning and you began to live again. You had to actually put your grief to the side and say, I've been given this time to grieve because God's allowed me the time to say, I miss this, I miss this, I miss this, I don't like this, I don't like this. But when we throw ourselves in a season longer than we're supposed to be in, we actually stall what God wants to do in us because we refuse to move from that place that we have lodged ourselves. And I think that is so intentional for so many of you guys out there that can't seem to get past certain traumas or certain things. Now, I understand that trauma will reverberate in our lives, but there is a season to actually deal with things. And there's a season that God will actually give you reprieve for it until he thinks you're strong enough to actually take some more of it. And so when I, you know, when I was really kind of walking through the aspects of my father's um, stuff and what he did to our household in his death, his illness, his religion, all, all the things that, that were what we carried after he left, right? Was our baggage that we carried after he left and having to discard that baggage. Sometimes God doesn't do it all in one fell swoop. He doesn't like come to us and be like, you want to deal with your dad? You want to deal with your mom's issues? You know, 
Um, you you want to deal with the the maybe the rape that you had or the alcoholic parent that you had or the trauma as a child that you had. And sometimes God doesn't come in. Sometimes He does, but sometimes He doesn't come in and say, "Oh, it's all done in one fell one moment. Boom, gone. Everything's gone, and you're like free as a bird." I think sometimes our trauma is so deep and it's hidden like frequencies inside of us. One, there's an incredibly uh, great book out there called the, um, the body keeps the score and it's, you know, no, I don't think it's a Christian book, but it, it's so helpful to understanding trauma and how your body is like a tablet of memory. And when things happen to us, we, there's a tablet of memory. We have frequencies in us that keep a memory of certain things. That is part of our artistry and our makeup. And it's also how we have to circle back around and find the epicenter for where the earthquake began. And once we find that, we can cut off um, how it keeps aftershocking us. And so I think it's so important to land here. Um, when we're talking about God as the artist, when we're talking about creative expression and we're talking about, wait, look, we cannot look at God without looking at a God who set into place from the beginning of scripture, this canopy of what will not change, what cannot change because it's not in God's way. It's not in his artist's plan. When he painted his Mona Lisa, he didn't paint it any other way. And for anybody to come to that painting and try to paint it or say, no, I think it works like this. And no, I think it works like that. It's coming directly against that thing that God put out for us. And so for those of us that are walking in the faith and for those of us that are struggling with it, even to look back and be like, oh gosh, okay. So yeah, like I live in this community and we have a winter, we have a spring, we have a summer, we have a fall. And what transitions in those places? Look around you when you transition from season to season. What actually is happening when winter's over and spring takes place? What happens to your demeanor when you've been looking at the bare trees outside your house or the bare trees in the park which you walk and, and how all of a sudden you could just see through them and there's things you probably are like, you know, if, if, you, if you have trees all along the backside of your house and it actually protects you from the freeway you live close to or the main highway you live close to or the neighbors that you live close to. And the winter months are really hard because you see right through to everything. And you're wanting that transition again to where that life happens that actually barricades things. And there's physical things that happen in our seasons to tell us change is coming, change is coming, change is coming, change is coming. And I think one of the most grand things that God is trying to do is tell us in the first five days, I've put everything into place. Everything that you need is in place. Those things out there that are living and breathing that actually pulses the oxygen that you're breathing, that keeps you alive, that's never going to want to be anything different because its purpose is to keep you alive with oxygen. And five days, five days, he, he separates vaults. Um, he separates waters, he creates land, he creates production, he creates life on land, life in oceans. He creates all these things. And on the sixth day, he does what he thinks is his best job. I mean, he creates all this stuff in the first five days that never deviates from the plan. You can walk outside and the Bible say, you know, 
if we won't praise him, the rocks will cry out and praise him. So while we're, we're taking our dog for a walk, I think about this almost every morning when I take my dog for a walk, I'm like, I need to praise him because as I'm walking around right now, I don't want that, that blade of grass. I don't want that rock over there. I don't want that tree to out praise me this morning. I want to actually, I want to breathe in this and thank God for this season. Thank God for what I see around me because he placed that around me so that I could walk in it today and realize that he was good and he's faithful and he's kind and he's given me the surroundings that he's given me. But then he creates me. Like then on the sixth day, he takes dust. So understand this is part of the artistry of God. He's taking dust and he's mixing it with his DNA. And so I want you to, to, to keep that banked in your memory because Jesus does this again in scripture. And it's very powerful what God is trying to say. And he's creating man out of the dust. So he creates man out of the dust. And, and then when he creates man in his image, now in scripture, he uses this as them. So before he creates man, it says he creates them in his image. So for us to separate man from woman and say, oh, well, he wanted to do man. And then man was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I need my counterpart. Um, and then God's like, oh, oops, let's just do a counterpart. Understand that according to theology, according to scripture, them is part of what scripture says. So the idea is God's and God's alone, um, that he is inclusive in that. And so he creates man first and he puts on man the governing position. And then he takes the rib from man and he creates Eve, which is pretty powerful. And, um, you know, this is where I'll, I'll, I'll stop this podcast here and we'll go on in episode two. We'll kind of go through this and talk a little bit more about this, this whole idea. Um, but I hope you're tracking with me in this. I just, I want to create this picture of you that, that what, what is transitioning on the sixth day is all of his belief and all of his artistry rolled into us that we would then paint his imagery in a way that paints his imagery. Um, the disciples say to Jesus in the New Testament, you know, why don't you just appear? You're powerful enough, why don't you just appear? And Jesus makes this beautiful statement. He says, you know, my, my father and I have come to make our home in you, that you would reveal us to the nations. And I want you to think about that as, as you, you see maybe in your mind's eye God leaning down and grabbing a bunch of dirt and creating himself and putting his imagery in man and doing something that he hasn't done at all um, in the first five days. But he's doing something that he's going to give governing to of all the things that he's done in the first five days. But he hangs a canopy over the sixth day. And he gives a guide post to the sixth day. And he puts lights in the sky for the sixth day. And he creates production um, and food for the sixth day. And all of the first five days in his artistry was about his greatest achievement. And that is, um, when he creates us to carry on his artistry. So join me, uh, episode two for our continuation in our conversation about creative expression. 